Thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. Uh, they got a riveting testimony. This is not going to be like uh, me standing up here preaching. This is going to be a different type presentation. And one we just, as Dan said, we strongly encourage you to invite your friends. If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're looking at a couple verses here and uh, taking them apart a little bit and helping us understand. Uh, as you turn there, uh, I'd like to re- Mind you that the purpose of our series, this, this series called The Wonder of God's Word, is that uh, it would cultivate in you and I a deeper appreciation and a love for the Word of God. Last week we talked about divine revelation, and that is really the concept of God's Word is He's revealing things to us and He's disclosing divine truth. And then you and I are most privileged that we have before us in the Bible God's divine revelation. His disclosure. This morning we're going to be looking at inspiration. It's more focused on the recording of God's revelation and what that all means. And 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 speak to this. All Scripture is inspired by God. And it's unprofitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. When I was in seventh grade back in Crystal Lake, Illinois, I had a girlfriend. It's true. Her name was Leanne Tyner. Leanne was sweet. She was, she was just a sweetheart. And uh, one time she came up and she says, I got a present for you. And I'm all excited, palms sweaty. I, I don't know what, what this is about. And she had this big square thing and it was a record. Now, for you young generation, think of a hubcap put on a pizza turner with a stick with a needle dropped down and it plays music. It was a miracle how this thing worked. And so she gave me this big album, and, uh, and it was Chicago. Who here remembers the group Chicago? Oh, this is a good group. And so kids, if your parents raise their hand, make sure they sing the song to you later at home. There was a song on this album called You're My Inspiration. A couple of the words on it. We're this, this group saying, you're the meaning in my life, you're my inspiration. You give feeling to my life, you're my inspiration. That's all you're getting from me for the song. I'm not going to sing it anymore. Parents will sing it, uh, kids, to you later. Um, It was an interesting song. Uh, It uses a a word inspiration. And uh, you've actually heard the word a couple times this morning. We use that word a lot, inspiration. But when the Bible uses it, it's got a totally different meaning. You could translate inspiration, God breathed. All all the scripture, the Bible, is God breathed. In other words, it communicates that the scriptures are the product of the breath of God. They were breathed out by Him. It's not that God breathed into the scriptures. It's not that a bunch of guys wrote books and, and God breathed into it. No, it wasn't that. It's just that the Scriptures are a product of the breath of God. They originated with God. They're God-breathed words. In order, though, for the, to produce this result, God also worked in human writers. And so we have a unique dynamic here. The concept of inspiration also speaks of divine control. And there's two concepts here when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture. The process and the result. 
We need to look at those two if we're to understand it. And I need you to hang in here with me. Some of you are like, oh man, this is just, you know, this is just is just too much maybe. Or, or, or why are we delving into this? This is important. This is just not any book. This is God's revelation breathed out to you and me, and it's significant we understand. Look at the definition. It's important we understand this. The supernatural work of the Holy Spirit on the writers of Scripture so that fully using their own personalities and writing styles, they wrote precisely what God intended them to write, which resulted in an inerrant document. We need to break that down. First of all, let's look at the process of inspiration. Go to 2 Peter 1. 20 through 21, and we have a great picture for us of what this looked like. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Muslims hold that their sacred writings, the Quran, was dictated to Muhammad from heaven. That's what they hold to. But this is not the claim of the Bible. You see, the problem over the years is people have had trouble with the humanness of the Bible, the human characteristics. It has led some to emphasize that the Bible is God's word of man, which cannot be separated with the word of God. In other words, because there's human personalities in here, this can't be the word of God. It's not really what the Bible teaches. And so look at 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. Peter writes, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Some liberal rationalists have stressed the humanity of scriptures to the point essentially denying divine inspiration. And there are some faulty views that it's important for us to understand about the inspiration of scripture and how it came to us. One view is called natural inspiration. It holds that the the writers of the Bible were gifted men, naturally gifted, with insight into religion, and that their inspiration was like a poet or a musician. The problem with that is there's no spiritual dimension. It leaves out God superintending over the process, which is real problematic. It leaves out the illuminating work of the Spirit, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. Natural inspiration results in a document with errors. Because after all, it's just a couple gifted people, sinful gifted people. And this concept of inspiration fails to do justice to the scriptural testimony that although the scriptures are written by humans, they are also God's word. There's another view that says the word of God, it's something that becomes the word of God to us. The Bible said to become the Word of God by personal encounter. Example would be, let's say Dan is, is reading a passage of Scripture and, and, and he senses God speaks to him. Uh, this view would say that that then becomes the Word of God to him. But what if I read the same passage and I don't sense God speaking to me? Is this now not the Word of God? So you can see the problem here. And so the problem with it is it becomes very subjective. And we would have to deny this based upon not only the testimony of Scripture because there's no support for that, but also just the the natural perspective that it leaves out the divine superintending over the process. There's another view called dictation. Some call it mechanical inspiration. This view suggests the writers were completely passive, that God simply dictated to them and they were nothing more than a secretary writing down. And it's pretty easy to see why some people get that. 
The thing, though, that it leaves out is it leaves out the fact that it, the Bible includes different personalities. And so somehow in inspiration, there was a preservation of each writer's personality. And this view also really de- denies, I think, that all Scripture is God-breathed. Because if you read Psalms, and Ecclesiastes especially, those two books, we see that there's meditative responses are considered as part of God's Word. And so it'd be awkward for God to dictate a meditative response to David as he meditates upon what's going on in his life. So somehow God preserved human personalities in this. We would have to deny that the dictation inspiration is adequate. Then there's limited inspiration, and there's a couple offshoots of this called a conceptual or partial inspiration. Basically, this view says the Bible is sufficient to accomplish its purposes of of communicating what salvation's about. But inspiration is limited to the main purpose or the main principle or the main emphasis on the Bible. But it does not extend to historical facts. In other words, limited inspiration says the main point is inspired, but the facts of some of those uh, things in the Bible, they could be wrong. Now, take that a step further and we would have to ask a question. Does that mean the resurrection is just a matter of faith? Or it is a historical fact. And can you have a resurrection that has never really happened that's not true historically and can that really be a basis of salvation? There's a problem with limited inspiration. You can't have inspiration if you've got faulty historical facts because the doctrine of Christ and his death and resurrection is based on historical facts. So you can see where limited inspiration becomes very problematic. But what's the biblical concept of inspiration? It's one thing to know what the fault views are, but what's the biblical concept of it? And that's where we get to 2 Peter 1, 20, uh, 20 and 21. According to this passage and others, the focus again is on two things, the process and the result. Now since this book is written by men, the Bible, purely human work, and since it men not perfect, it must have error in it, so many thought. So Peter wrote this because of that thought. It's unique, the wording. No, he says, know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. In other words, it's not that Paul one day sat down and said, you know what, I think I'm going to write the book of Galatians. I think I'm going to write a letter that will be part of Scripture. Peter didn't get up one morning and say, you know what, I think I'm going to write First Peter today. How do we know that didn't happen? Is because of what it says right here. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But what happened? Men were moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That word moved is a unique word. It's an ancient Greek nautical term. And when a ship had lost its sail or its rudder, it became at the mercy of the current and of the wind and at the waves. And so the authors were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were at the mercy of the Holy Spirit. They let themselves be driven by the Holy Spirit, so that what they wrote was what God wanted written. And so God selected the writers who recorded as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and as the Holy Spirit worked through each of the personalities, they wrote God's perfect revelation. So the argument that man's involvement can't equate to a perfect revelation would be true, except God was in control of the process. The Holy Spirit uniquely worked in this process called inspiration, to overrule their defect of sin and guiding them to say and to write exactly what God wanted. And Scripture testifies to this. 
There are a number of places in the New Testament, portions of the Old Testament, that were written by various men, and yet it was signed to the Holy Spirit as the author. One is in Mark 12, 36, and, but turn to Acts 1, 16. Let's just give you one example, see what it looks like. Again, these verses that Scripture tells us were written by various men, but the author is considered to be the Holy Spirit. Peter stands up in the upper room. There's over 100 people before him at this point, in this particular occasion. In the midst of his words, he says this, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested it. So who is the author? The Holy Spirit, who wrote through David, who spoke through David. In other words, David's words from Psalm 41 are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Acts 4, 24 and 25, David's words from Psalm 2 are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. And so we have Scripture, which came from God, and although it came through the writings of men, so what was written was viewed as what God said. And so let's quickly recap here. All scriptures God breathed. And the Bible testifies to a perfect revelation. It was recorded by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit so that what they wrote was exactly what God wanted written and what God wanted said. And because of this process of inspiration, we have a result, an important result. Because all scriptures God breathed, God oversaw this process of recording his revelation result is we have a permanent record of what God wanted said. And this record's errorless, it's authoritative, and it's an errant text. The word inerrant is a fancy word for without error. <laughs> I read an article, an interesting article. Article is about Adam Hamilton. He's leading the largest United Methodist congregation in the United States. He wrote a book recently called Making Sense of the Bible, Rediscovering the Power of Scripture Today. Jonathan Merritt's an author for Religion News, and he interviewed him. Here's a question he asked. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16 says. You believe the Bible's divinely inspired. Can you explain what you mean exactly? Here's what Mr. Hamilton said. He said, Christians often assume they know what this means, but Paul seems to have created the word inspired. It does not appear in the Greek language before this and is used nowhere else in the Bible. It literally means God breathed. But Paul doesn't go on to explain precisely what it means. It's a metaphor. And he says, and metaphors are not precise. You push them too far and they break down. And he adds this, when I think of inspired, I think of God influenced. This leaves open a variety of ways in which the biblical authors were influenced by God. That should trouble you. It falls short of what Scripture says. God didn't merely influence the writers of Scripture. God breathed the Scriptures. He didn't just influence the writers to put some things that were, were pretty good, but God's Spirit moved through the writers that what they wrote was of Scripture. And so we have some problems even in the realm of Christianity embracing this doctrine. But the, the result of the inspiration of Scripture is we have authoritative canon of Scripture. A canon is an accumulation of the books of the Bible. And this is why the testimony of the Jewish people in the early church were so careful, is they acknowledged what was Scripture and what wasn't. 
And they really use specific guiding principles, and it would be good for us to know what these are, as they determine what books fell into the canon of Scripture, what books were God-breathed. Here are some of the criteria they used. One is, is it authoritative? In other words, does the book come with the divine authority of thus says the Lord? Is it authoritative? Another guiding principle is, is it prophetic? Is it apostolic? Does it come with an apostolic acknowledgement, apostolic endorsement? Was it written by an apostle or a or close a minister alongside them? Was it apostolic? Is it authentic? By that they meant were the manuscripts authentic? Were they carefully written down and preserved? New Testament, Old Testament, church fathers were very careful. And it greatly enhanced their discernment. Another guiding principle was it confirmed by Jesus and the New Testament authors. Especially the Old Testament books. We know Jesus quoted the Old Testament a lot. We know the New Testament authors, Peter, Paul quoted the Old Testament a lot. We know that Peter even referenced in one of his letters about Paul's letters being Scripture. And Paul references Peter about his writings being Scripture. Was it confirmed by Jesus' New Testament authors? Great guideline. Another guideline, is it dynamic? In other words, did the book come with the transforming power of God? It was a huge question, a huge guideline they used. Did it supernaturally lift people up? Another guideline, was it revealed, collected, read, used, accepted by the people of God? You see, in a Jewish list, which people, God's people made as the standard... They're very careful. And they weeded out a lot of things because there's acknowledgement that this does not belong in Scripture. Here's where the Apocrypha falls short. Back many years ago at the Council of Trent, the Deuterocanonical, which is the second canon, the Roman Catholic Church gave full canonical status to these books called the Apocrypha. The question is, are they Scripture? We resoundingly say no for just a couple reasons. They're not on a Jewish list at all. They're never quoted by Jesus or the New Testament authors. Their teachings were not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Plus, by about 200 A.D., that this, the, word, the books, the canon, was already authenticated and, and, and considered authoritative, and these books were long after that. There was a problem there on the table and that is there was a certain church that thought they could create the canon. But the canon wasn't something man created, rather man submitted to the Scriptures as God breathed them out. The Scriptures became the highest, higher authority, not the church. And so we can confidently deny that the Apocrypha is part of Scripture. You know, Jesus taught about inspiration. Which is very helpful because if you reject the inerrant nature of the Bible, you need to do battle with Jesus because he taught it. In Matthew 5, 17 through 18, we just want to glance at this, unfortunately, at this point, but it's an emphatic message for us of what Jesus says. The teaching in Jesus' day, teachers, questioned his stand on established doctrine. And he set the records perfectly straight with his view on Scripture. Look at verse 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. When Jesus uses the words law and prophets, it's two ways of referring to the Old Testament. And Jesus here refers to the smallest letter in the Hebrew language, which is smaller than our, our, our small case, lowercase i. But then he also refers to a tiny stroke, which would distinguish between one Hebrew letter and the other, which is actually probably as small as the little dot on the lowercase i. In other words, the Bible's so right down to the most intricate letters, it won't fail. All of it's inspired. In fact, for the Bible to fail, heaven and earth would have to pass away. In John 10, 34 through 35, Jesus' words in defense of his claim to be God, his arguments based and focused on one word from Psalm 82, 6. You see, to Jesus, the Bible claims inerrancy. Uh, commentators and theologians use plenary inspiration, which means fully inspired, and also verbal inspiration, which means the words are inspired. Jesus would affirm that. I also think there's a logical argument here. It's impossible to believe that Jesus could repeatedly relate himself and his ministry as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and at the same time believe that they were only human writings filled with, filled with mistakes. He wouldn't have done that. Whoever denies inerrancy also denies the witness of Jesus to the whole Bible. So let's sum it up. All scriptures God breathed. The Bible records God's perfect revelation is given. It's written by various men who were moved by the Holy Spirit who wrote what God wanted. And because God oversaw this whole process, we have an inerrant text. The 66 books of the Bible. Well, what's the significance wrapping this up? I know you kind of had to weed through this, but this is important. We understand this isn't just any ordinary book. And since the Bible's God-breathed, it stands as our ultimate authority. So when you open the Bible, God said, and, and that's enough, because it's our ultimate authority. And you can't have ultimate authority without an inerrant text. The Bible is the authority of God Submit to it. You might not have a Bible at home. You might have lost one or might be falling apart, which is a good thing if you're reading it. Uh, if you need one, come see me. We'd love to give you a Bible. And maybe you're like, you know, I'd like to get one for my child or I'd like to go out and get a new one. And you're like, I'm not sure what translation uh, to get. You're at the right place because if you turn over your sermon outline, uh, you'll see a little overview of translations. And, and some are, I use the New American Standard Bible. The reason I do it is because it's literally almost word for word. But sometimes that translation becomes a little awkward. And so many will read the NIV, which is more phrase by phrase, but very accurate. And so maybe that'll help you a little bit. Then you get to the message, which is really not a Bible study because it's more of just a, not even really a Bible as much as a paraphrase. It's very great to reflect on, but it's not a study Bible. It's not meant to be. Um, it's just kind of a great way to read and kind of get an overview and, and, and kind of get you more reflective. And so it has merit, but it wouldn't be considered a real accurate translation. It was never meant to be. And because the Bible's God-breathed, number two, we must hear it as God's speech to us. Because God breathed the Scripture, the living, loving God continues to speak. Wasn't that what John said to us? 
He wanted God to speak, and God did. The Word of God speaks, and we must hear it as God's speech to us. Not to Dad, not to Mom, not to a certain few, but to you personally. Psalm 1 speaks of a fruitful life. And it says to have a fruitful life, you need to spend time listening to God. If there's no time in the Bible, there's no growth. You're left only with the human perspective. I don't know of many people in our life who don't want stability, who don't want peace. Listen to this verse from Psalm 119. Those who love your law, who love your word, have great peace, and there's nothing in them caused them to stumble. Is your life unsteady? Is defeated, anxious, worried, divided? Get in the word. God's promise is my word, which is my speech to you, will give you peace. There will be a stability in your life you've never known before. So build your life upon God as God breathes scriptures. Back to Leanne Tyner. I don't know where Leanne is. The Chicago album she gave me, I got no clue. I probably shot it with a BB gun sometime. It's broke. I don't know where it's at. It's long gone. And you know the inspiration it was supposed to give me? (laughs) That's long gone. But this book, is God-breathed Scripture, will stand for all time. will bring you peace and will give you a life that will never fall apart. Let's pray. Lord, it has been my prayer that we would not get lost maybe in the technicalities of trying to figure out what it means, inspiration, and I hope that hasn't happened. What I hope has happened, God, is that as we sit here now, we maybe understand a little bit better how significant your word is. That there would be a deeper appreciation for what it means to have an inspired revelation. I thank you, God, for clarifying it a little bit better for us. I hope, I trust. And I pray as we pick up the Bible this week, you would bring it to our mind. These are your words to us. This is your heartbeat. You want us to hear. No wonder Jesus said so often that people needed ears to hear. Might we have ears to hear what you want to say to us this week? We'll thank you for that. And we'll give you the praise for all that you're going to say and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.